Welcome to the Strong for Performance podcast, where we give coaches and consultants practical ideas for taking you to the next level in your business and in your life. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. I interview experts who've walked in your shoes and offer real-world experience that you can apply to your own journey. Welcome to another episode of the Strong for Performance podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. And today I am absolutely delighted to have as my guest, Darren Gold. Darren, welcome to my show. Oh, thank you, Meredith. It's such a pleasure to be on with you. I appreciate you having me. Well, I want to let my audience know how I learned about you was listening to another podcast, Chris mm-hmm. Doris. And as I heard him inter- interview you, I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to get Darren's book and I need to invite him to be a guest on my podcast. Before we get into our interview, though, I want to tell my audience what was so intriguing to me about your message. Darren is the managing partner of the Trium Group, where he serves as an executive coach to the CEOs of some of the world's most influential companies. He was interestingly trained initially as an attorney. He worked at McKinsey and Company. He worked as a partner at two San Francisco investment firms, and he has served as the CEO of two companies. So quite an interesting uh, career path you've had. He's also the author of a book that I absolutely love, and I recently did an interview on Amazon, Darren, and I said it's in my top three all-time favorite personal development and leadership development books. It's called Master Your Code, which I have right here, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. I just love that title. And you. you had some fantastic reviews by CEOs of many large companies like the Home Depot and HubSpot, I mean Dropbox, and from other experts in the fields of leadership and personal development. And to me, your book is just beautifully written. You synthesize information from a wide range of sources so effectively, and you really give people a roadmap for how to develop that extraordinary life that we really all want. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do, though, before we delve into some of the key, um, some of my favorite parts of the book, is to get you to tell us a little bit about your background, because I have a feeling none of my listeners had anything close to the upbringing Mm -hmm. that you had. And I think it's significant to Talk about that a little bit and and how it led you to the path that you're on today. Yeah, I was for many years reluctant to share this part of my background, partly because I didn't think it was that interesting, um, which I guess in retrospect seems a little silly. Um, And I was a little embarrassed. Um, And now, of course, um, later in life, I have a much different view of uh, the importance of understanding your background and and sharing it. Um, So I'm happy to do that. Um, In many respects, I grew up in a a pretty dysfunctional and volatile, um, some might think unsafe um, background. Uh, I think before I go any further, the one sort of 
central, calming, uh, consistent aspect to my childhood was the love of my father. And despite all of the surrounding volatility, I had that to count on, which really was instrumental in my childhood and, and ultimately uh, me becoming the person I've, I've become. Uh, but but I, was, I was raised by a single father, largely grew, grew up in a pretty tough neighborhood in Los Angeles after having moved from London, England. My dad was um, involved in a, in a number of illicit activities. <laughs> um, and he basically got by knowing what he uh, knew how to do best, um, which never was oftentimes on the wrong side of the law. So I grew up in this sort of environment of crime, um, some violence, thankfully none directed towards me, uh, an estranged mother who I, I write about in one of my chapters who unfortunately succumbed to uh, a lot of hardship, a lot of alcohol and drug abuse and addiction. Um, and uh, in, amidst all of that, I had a father who, again, was extremely loving and was determined that I live a very different life. And as a consequence, I was too. And the central message, the central theme of my childhood was around education and learning and the importance of getting educated and learning to live a very different life. And I was very determined to do that. And that really propelled me out of that childhood into, you know, a professional career that was largely for the first couple decades focused on achieving and getting ahead. And in many respects, that really served me in a lot of respects that, you know, that limited me. And we can talk, of course, at, at greater depth about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's a fascinating story. And I love the way you do evolve uh, in the book uh, in terms of sharing some of those experiences. And that chapter about Darren's mother that he's referring to is on forgiveness. And it's just such a powerful, powerful chapter. Well, thinking about your book, there was a quote I wanted to kind of kick off with. You say, the most fundamental choice you can make in your life is to master your code. Yeah. And of course, that's the title of your book. So in order to go deeper, I'd like you to explain what you really mean by code and programs and the mm -hmm. distinction between the two. Yeah, I offer that distinction in the very first page of the book. I define a program. I say everybody has a program. And I define it as a set of safety-based, subconscious beliefs, values, and rules that automatically drive your behavior and limit your results. And I contrast that with uh, this notion of a code, which is a consciously constructed, consciously chosen set of beliefs, values, and rules that's purposefully designed to really serve you and produce extraordinary results. And what I discovered, I was almost 40 years old when I discovered and I woke up to the fact that much of my life had been driven by a program, as I said, that was written by a seven-year-old boy. And when I woke up to that fact and I became aware that um, much of how I was leading my life was the manifestation of this subconscious program, and that I had a choice to reconstruct it, um, which I call the human superpower, um, and that I could choose um, a set of beliefs that really served me, the whole game changed. And it was in that moment when I realized I had this power of choice to consciously construct what I believe in, what I value, and do it in a way that, um, that really serves me and others. 
And, uh, and that's this sort of fundamental choice that I point, that I point to, which is this notion of mastering your code. Yeah. I, I really like the fact that on some pages you've got the rule Mm. that you were living by that was kind of guiding your behavior. And you were talking about, you know, living from the perspective of a seven-year-old. What, give us an example of, of what that thinking was and why you decided to make a change from the old way to a better way. Yeah. I talk about this notion in the book of, of survival strategies and I'll give you an example of, 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 of one of mine. And what I, what I argue um, is that almost all of us in childhood experience some form of trauma that could be very serious trauma or what I call lowercase T trauma, which nonetheless for a young child can be pretty traumatic. That might be getting teased or bullied or something like that. But in that moment of trauma, uh, a child will begin to implement unknowingly a survival strategy. It's some declaration in that moment. And mine, for me, I was a seven, eight-year-old boy coming from London, England. I had an English accent, which is very cool if you're 18 years old, but as a seven or eight-year-old boy is not very cool. And I was teased because of that. And in order to feel safe and to feel included, my strategy, and I didn't know it was a strategy at the time, was I had to be liked. And I had to be liked at all costs. And this sort of likability became um, part of my identity. I became really good at it. And it really served me. I was popular in school. I was student body president of my large public high school. I had early professional success. This was a rule that was part of my program that I developed early on in childhood that was running my life. And like most rules or beliefs, part of those rules and beliefs really serve you. And part are really getting in the way of really being the best version of yourself. And where it got in my way was I had an incredible difficulty being really direct, honest, and open with people in conversations. And as I was put into in, in roles of increasing levels of responsibility and leadership, I was being called forth to have those kinds of challenging conversations and I had no access to that action. Mm. So strong was the survival strategy and I couldn't even see it. And that's the thing, you can't change what you can't see. And it was the moment that I first discovered, wait a second, I made up this rule about being likable when I was a little kid. And what can be made up can be reconstructed. And when I realized that, that, that sort of moment of realization and awareness and choice was what changed everything. I said, I can make, I can make it all up. And so at that point, I was like, I don't need to be so attached so like compulsively obsessed with this need to be likable doesn't mean I will give up the the need to be liked but I can expand my range of action I can be direct and honest with people and still be liked at the same time and that is a different level of effectiveness you know in any role uh, that you're playing uh, not not just leadership mm-hmm. and so that would be an example of one of hundreds of rules and beliefs that we bring into Uh, the way we lead and live our lives. Well, I like your phrase about it's our superpower. And I want to go deeper with that because I think that's really important for my listeners to appreciate. What does that mean to be able to um, create your own meaning, create Mm -hmm. your own beliefs around yourself or a given situation? 
Yeah. Well, I'm going to share uh, the story that I write about in the book, if that's okay, because sure, I think it's, it's a little antiquated, but I think it really illustrates the point of this notion of we get to choose the meaning we give to our circumstances. And this, the, the, the quick story is they're two shoe salesmen, the year's 1900. They're based in London. They're asked by their home office to go to a developing country to determine whether there's a market there for shoes. So they take this long journey by boat across the ocean and they arrive four days you know, into their journey and they get off the boat into the village and all they can see are thousands of villagers, none of whom is wearing shoes. So they rush back to the port and they go to the nearest telegraph office and the first shoe salesman writes, total disaster, no one here wears shoes, I'll be on the next boat home. The second shoe salesman says, glorious opportunity, no one here wears shoes yet, please send more inventory fast. And to me, I love that story. It's a little old and tired, <laughs> but what it does is it, it illustrates this notion of the human superpower, that the world shows up as inherently meaningless. We give it meaning and we get to choose the meaning we give it. We can choose a meaning born out of scarcity or insecurity and fear. The actions we take will be a result of that meaning. We'll get on the next boat home. Or we can choose, again, the human superpower, to give a empowering meaning born out of abundance and possibility. And the actions we take will be consistent with that meaning, getting totally different results. So if we want different results in any area of life, you've got to take different actions. And if you want to take different actions, you've got to hold a different set of beliefs, beliefs about yourself and beliefs about your circumstances. And the human superpower is we get to choose those beliefs. They show up as these truths. It's got to, I got to be likable was a truth that I held. But when we begin to see their constructions and we get to choose them, that's when the game changes. And that's really the, this whole notion of mastering your code is based on that sort of fundamental premise. So that is a really important concept. I'm curious um, in thinking about someone who's listening to this, that's holding on to a belief they've had for a long time. And it feels like the truth. It does. You yeah. know, I could never see myself doing this, or I don't know how I'm going to do that. What are some strategies that can help someone make that shift when yeah. they feel stuck, when they feel like this is reality? I mean, even looking at what's going on in our world right now, there's mm -hmm. so much with we're in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. We have racial tensions that have yep. been, um, you know, in the news. Uh, there's so many things that people could look at that and they have in different ways and draw different conclusions. Yeah. And yeah. so I, I'd really love to have someone listening feel like they've gotten some empowerment mm. because of the insights that you've gained and you have shared about how do we do that? How do we yeah. change our perspective from what we feel is so is the right way? Well, it starts with asking a different question. And the question most people ask is, is the belief, well, first of all, they don't, you've got to recognize that it's a belief to begin with. That's a, that's big, right? Yeah. So your listeners hopefully are now already a giant step ahead, um, which is, wow, okay, my behavior, my actions are a manifestation of the beliefs I'm holding is a huge um, step in, in, in the direction of awareness and empowerment. But the question then becomes not, is the belief true? 
Because if you go back to the shoe salesman story, I can find truth in total disaster. I can find truth in glorious opportunity. The question, is it true, is a loser question. It's a natural one, but it's not going to serve you. The better question, I argue, is which belief better serves me? And that opens up a whole new world. So let's talk about the, this inc incredible pandemic. There is massive truth to the following belief. This is a disaster. It's an incredibly horrible crisis, right? And of course, like, we can find lots of truth. We can find a lot of truth in this is an incredible opportunity for the world, right? It represents an opportunity to rethink everything, right? And explore possibility maybe in ways we've never done before. And I can find a lot of truth in that. Question is which belief is going to lead to more effective action? And I would argue not to dismiss the real tragedy of this crisis, but to say, if I'm more focused on asking the question, where are there possibilities to do amazing things in this crisis? The actions that are gonna appear as even available to me are totally gonna to shift. And so if it's a question about I'm not good enough you know, we, we talked a little earlier about, you know, before this interview about, you know, am I an author? I held a belief that I wasn't an author. And believe me, if I'm holding a belief, I'm not an author, guess what actions I'm going to take? They're not going to be ones consistent with writing a book. Do talk about that shift too. That yeah. you went through from not being an author to having a book published. Right. And it was, again, as I sort of trace it back, even though I didn't quite see it at the time, the underlying belief I was holding was I am not an author. There's nothing original I have to write. People aren't going to be interested in what I have to say. Uh, I need five more years. Those were the unconscious beliefs I was holding. And the secret to extraordinary action, secret to leading an extraordinary life is to be able to see the underlying beliefs you're holding and begin to expand them. That doesn't mean all of a sudden I said, I'm the world's greatest author. That would be ridiculous. But I could say, wait a second, I actually have a gift. Uh, I write well. Um, I have an ability to synthesize information and offer it to the world. Um, that set of beliefs is equally true and is going to much better serve me. And it wasn't until I really took those beliefs on and said, wait a second, I've got a gift and I owe it to the world to lean into that and do the hard work of writing a book that I actually sat down and started writing a book. So this is, I think, where you know, everybody's interested in this question of like, how do I lead an extraordinary life? However you define extraordinary. And there's a whole, we could spend hours just on that topic. Mm -hmm. But it, it starts with, my humble assertion is it starts with understanding the beliefs you hold about yourself, about your circumstances, about others, and then beginning to expand those beliefs. And notice I, I don't say shift because... A lot of the beliefs we hold really serve us. This is about just allowing more room for a greater degree of action. And I find that expanding your beliefs tends to be a better way to, to think. I like that very much because for one thing, it sounds more doable. Mm -hmm. I'm not having to give up something exactly. that I have had. And so it doesn't sound or feel as hard. I'm simply opening up to more possibilities. Yeah, I still can have some doubts about, you know, my being an author. And there's some really incredible, incredible part about that doubt. It comes with a lot of humility, right? And I can expand it to allow for a belief that says, I have some real gifts that uh, I owe to myself and to the world to really nurture. And if I can hold both of those, that expanded belief, mm -hmm. um, that is going to serve me much more um, 
than, you know, holding a belief that I'm, you know, I, I don't deserve to write anything. Well, the focus of your book, um, for those who haven't seen it yet, there are 10 chapters around these 10 declarations that you basically are helping people take ownership of themselves in a number of ways. And so I want to go into a few of those just to give people a taste of what that really means. Right. And one of my favorites was the, you know, I am 100% responsible for yeah. myself. And, and I think that was the chapter you went into the internal locus of control versus That's the right. external which of course has everything to do with how powerful do I feel about being able to influence my own life and yes. the things around me. And so I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that and use the example of that one leadership team mm. that mm. you were coaching, because I think that was very powerful for your own awareness yeah. of that whole principle or declaration around responsibility. Yeah, it's uh I, I say there, there are these two main beliefs that we hold, and I've referenced them already, the beliefs we hold about ourselves, the beliefs we hold about our circumstances. And in the latter category is this distinction that you refer to, which is locus of control. It's a psychological concept from the 1960s. And what it says is that people lie somewhere on a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum are people that have an external locus of control. And the basic belief there is that the world happens to me. Circumstances shape me. There's very little I can do to affect my situation. It's what I call the dominant default mindset of human beings. And it's a very seductive place to be because we get to avoid responsibility. Um, it's what I call the victim mindset. Um, and you see it all over the place. And if, we're, if I'm not careful, I'll slip into that, right? Uh, on the other end of the spectrum is what um, is called an internal locus of control or a responsible mindset, which is this notion that I shape my circumstances. Um, there's always something I can do to affect any situation. And I go so far as to say, it's a bit radical, to say that I'm 100% responsible for every outcome in my life. Now, again, that's a kind of a crazy assertion because there's lots of times where things are out of our control. But then I go back to this notion of, it's not whether the belief is true, it's whether that belief serves me. And a belief that I'm 100% responsible for my life is always going to be the more empowering belief. And it will lead to actions that are more likely to result in the outcomes that I really want in life, even though it's very true that there are times where things are out of my control. So um, that's, a, that's this belief that I, uh, that I go into, into some depth, because as it shows up, particularly in the realm of leadership, the one thing that you will notice is the human instinct is to externalize. It's to point the finger, it's to blame. So if you ask a leader what the problem is, most likely you will hear something about my direct reports, my team, my organization, the culture, the competition, everything outside of him or her. And what you'll rarely see is a leader go inward and say, where am I contributing to the situation? Mm. And what if the first question I asked and the first action I, I took was born out of that orientation? Then I can more credibly try to influence and change and motivate people. So it's a very kind of Gandhian notion of like, be the change you want to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And I share in the book this story where I got caught unknown, you know, unconsciously uh, and had to sort of remind myself 
but I was coaching a CEO and uh, his team, the sort of a, a very well-known technology company. And in the midst of the coaching engagement, we were coaching the entire team. The CEO decided to, to stop coaching. And as a team of coaches, we were meeting and we were noticing that without being able to coach the CEO, our effectiveness as a group of coaches coaching this team was, was being compromised. And the nature of the conversations were all about how the CEO's decision to pause coaching were impacting our ability. Now, what we've just talked about is that's totally consistent with a victim mindset. And there's very little I can do to affect my circumstances. And it wasn't until I said, wait a second, here I am stuck in the very thing that I coach others not to get stuck in. What would it look like if I asked the question, I'm 100% responsible for the success of this engagement? And that question was changed everything for me. I said, well, I would pick up the phone, I'd call the CEO. <laughs> Sounds obvious now, but in retrospect, it wasn't. <laughs> I take a stand for the importance of him resuming coaching. And that's what I did. And the outcome was actually, it was very favorable. It's one very small example of how this shows up all the time. And it may be the most important shift you can make. So as you ask the question, what can my listeners do? It would be to be aware of this distinction and to notice how often we're operating in a place of there's nothing I can do. The world's happening to me. Mm-hmm. And powerfully shifting to a question that says, what would I do? Not is it true, but what would I do if I were 100% responsible? And that very question will open up a whole new set of actions. It really does. I love that question because it, uh, I think we can, when we get stuck, that creativity sort of dries up. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we feel like, what are the options? But just asking the question differently or asking yeah. a different question leads to an amazing number of options. Some of them you may decide, well, that's not really what I want to do, but you can see things you wouldn't have seen otherwise. Exactly. And I yeah. think that's, that's so profound. So I would encourage folks to be thinking about what's one area where I've been assuming I have no control or assuming mm. I can't do anything well, the cue is, Meredith, uh, a judgment or a complaint. Oh. And what I often do is I say, everybody, yeah, and it's a who isn't judging and complaining all the time, right? <laughs> and I often go to just, you know, parenting would be a great example. My children don't listen to me. Okay. Now, is there truth in that? Absolutely. I have three teenage kids, right? So there's, uh, that's, again, doesn't happen. It doesn't matter the truth. But if I ask a different question, I'd said, what if I'm 100% responsible for the quality of the relationships with my children. And I said, well, I would turn that around and say, where am I not listening to my children? Mm. And say, wow, there are a myriad of examples of where I'm not listening to my children. And how can I expect my children to do something I'm not willing to consistently do? That's a game changer. Because if I now take responsibility and say, hey kids, I'm sorry, I haven't been listening to you. Think about the impact that that statement has, that mature statement of responsibility, right? And now if I ask them to, to listen, we are in a mutual relationship, right? One born out of mature responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can take that simple lesson and apply it in any area of life, family, community, friendship, leadership, 
And it's really at the heart of this distinction that I'm offering is we very quickly go to the other is doing this to me and we don't go to ourselves. Oh, I love that. And I think it's really a, a, truly a game changer when we can flip it. And I, and I like the idea that you're, you're kind of the trigger for becoming more aware is looking critically at someone else and mm -hmm. blaming them or, you know, criticizing them. And in reality, turning it around, as you say, asking the question, how am I not being whatever it is we're seeing them <laughs> doing or not doing? I yeah. think that's very powerful. And, you know, what's interesting, too, is I'm listening to you talk about that, Darren. I think sometimes parents, leaders are afraid or hesitant to acknowledge where they haven't been perfect, where they have you know, not been doing things as well because they feel like I'm the one that's supposed to be the mm. example and I'll appear weak if yeah. I acknowledge this. But what you're saying is it sounds like it's actually a strength. Yeah. And I always ask people that have that reservation, remember a time when you've been in the presence of somebody who had the maturity to take accountability for where they fell short. What was your reaction to that? And invariably, they were like, that was extraordinary. That was somebody I wanted to be like. That's somebody I wanted to be led by, right? So I was like, okay, then why the reservation, right? And um, it, it, sometimes it's as simple as just putting yourself in the place of being in the presence of somebody who has that kind of grace and maturity to be reminded of the power of responsibility. You know, oftentimes we use the word vulnerability. I'm not sure... I, I love the spirit of that word. I prefer responsibility. Um, vulnerability almost seems to suggest putting yourself in danger and risk. And I know that's not the intention. And I, I love the spirit of vulnerability, but I, I like the idea of responsibility, uh, you know, it's responsibility for where I'm falling short of the very ideals that I'd like to see in others. Mm -hmm. And yes, is that an act of vulnerability? Sure. But it's an act of strength more, more so than anything else. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah. Hadn't thought about vulnerability in quite that way, but I think yeah. it makes makes sense. Yeah. The chapter on forgiveness, hmm. uh, without going into the details about you know the whole um, story with your mother, I want to extract those some of the key things because it's easy for someone to hold on to resentments yeah. about what someone did or didn't do for or with them. And what, what would be some insights that you could share that might facilitate someone letting go of those yeah. negative emotions? This is really hard, you know, and it, take, it took me a long time um, to discover, again, to have enough courage, have enough maturity and enough wisdom to discover the freeing potential of un unconditional forgiveness. And... Um, Sort of, I'd go back to what we had earlier talked about, which was this notion of, is this belief serving you? Is it true? Well, sure. Like somebody's wronged me, right? So, you know, when we're, 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 we're holding on to resentment, it's because we've been wronged in some way, like, you know, justifiably wronged, uh, justifiably resentful because we've been wronged. And so it doesn't suggest um, that, the act of wrongdoing should be forgiven or should be forgotten. 
um, or that others shouldn't be held to account for their wrongdoings. But it does ask the question, is holding onto the resentment serving me? Mm. And the answer is always no. There is nothing to be gained by holding on to resentment. And, you know, and what I've learned over a long time is that the act of unconditional forgiveness, what's left in its place is love. And there's nothing more powerful than love. And, you know, and I keep asking people this question, you know, over and over again, what they really want in life. And it boils down to, they want, that's what they want. They want a feeling of love. Um, and so to me, there's sort of a very practical application of this work to the, uh, the domain of forgiveness, which is, is this, this notion of a holding, that I'm holding on to resentment, is it serving me? Mm-hmm. When I can see, no, it's not holding, it's not serving me at all. Letting it go doesn't let anybody off the hook. It frees me to be at my, my, at my best. It frees me for my heart to fill up with what I want most, which are the, the positive emotions mm-hmm. um, where I can hold people to account for their wrongdoings, but I can do it with grace and compassion and understanding. And that's not, that is not mutually exclusive with uh, holding people accountable. And I think that's where people get tripped up. They say, well, if I forgive somebody, I let them off a hook, they're free to do the wrong again. And say, no, if you look at all the great historical figures, you know, Nelson Mandela, when he was let out of jail after 27 years, when he was walking out of the gates of that prison decided, I decided at that moment, I had to let go of my resentment. Otherwise I would remain in prison for the rest of my life. Mm. So if you want to stay in prison, metaphorically, hold on to your grudges. If you want to be free to be at your best, to be what really lights you up in life, learn to get the courage and maturity to forgive. And I'm not suggesting it's easy. It's probably the, one of the hardest things to do. And because it's the hardest thing to do, it's the most rewarding when you figure out how to do it. Mm-hmm. That's great advice. And I think very powerful, especially people that have lived with pain for many years that, um, you know, the other person, let's say you're resentful of this other individual, they're off doing their own thing. (laughs) They're not the one suffering. You're the one suffering. It goes back to, do I want to choose to continue to hold on to this and run it through my mind again and again and again? where it's, it's not serving me. It's holding yeah. me back from yeah, there's where I could go. Some quote, and I'm paraphrasing, but hatred, you know, poisons the soul of the hater, not the hated, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's a liberating act to let go of resentment. And I go beyond just the letting go because that's, that's a neutral act and it's very powerful. But I actually go further and say, and to find a place where you can be compassionate no matter how wrong the act. And that's a big leap, you know? And so I don't mean to suggest it's easy to do, but it's ultimately, I think, where um, I believe people need to aim for. Well, you know, what you're saying, when we put it in the context of your subtitle, you know, this idea of leading an extraordinary life, it's impossible to do that if you are shackled by things from Mm -hmm. the past. Yes. And so holding on to resentments, negative feelings really of any kind are going to prevent us from being able to have that extraordinary life, however we define it. The other um, chapter that really touched home with me was the one on understanding. 
Mm. because it's all tied to listening deeply to other human beings. And that is a belief that I have Mm. uh, that I like and that feels good because I see the benefits when I do it well with that other person in terms of the connection. What are some of the suggestions that you have around demonstrating that or, or getting in that place where you're kind of have the mindset and you're in the position of, I want to really be with this person. So I do understand them and they feel understood. Yeah. Well, I think it begins with understanding what's getting in the way of that to begin with, right? Because I think the natural default human condition is to go into conversation, dialogue with another person and there being something that stands in the way of the kind of true, deep, uh, full listening that you're, you're describing and that I write about in the book. And largely that's a commitment to my own ego, right? It could be a need to be liked, a need to be in control, you know, a need to be right, right? We carry with us these, they're much like the survival strategies, right? These beliefs that are very um, oriented towards the protection of self, Mm-hmm. And that's what stands in the way of true understanding and true listening to another human being is we have our own agendas and we're listening, right, for ways to support that agenda. So it starts just to, be, it starts with an understanding of like, what is it about my own psychology that I bring into my relationships, that I bring into the conversations that I have with people? Um, wow, the need to be right. Oh yeah, that's a strong one for me. Or the need to be perfect or the need to be liked or the need to be included. I am listening out of that need. And a listening born out of an egoic need is going to distract you from the kind of true listening, the kind of full listening. And if you've ever been heard, and you're extraordinary at this, by the way, Meredith, if you've ever been heard by somebody that gives you their full undivided attention without regard to self. It's an extraordinary experience. It's a gift you can give somebody. And so I, you know, I say it just starts with understanding what am I bringing into this conversation? You know, I could have come into this conversation if I weren't conscious and said, I'm going to have a need to be really eloquent and shine in this conversation. Okay. That's, that's okay. I can, I can, I can honor and own that, but how do I do it in a way that doesn't prevent me from really connecting with this person, really understanding and listening. And if I'm conscious of what I'm bringing into the conversation, the more likely it is that I'm going to be able to put that aside and, and listen fully. And it's a practice. Like anything, it requires overcoming some deeply held patterns uh, that we've accumulated over time. And, uh, you know, it just, it takes, it takes some practice and some desire. Well, the other thing I uh, appreciated in your book is you really give some opportunities for us to do that self-reflection, self-examination. Mm-hmm. You have some great, practical, easy to do. I say easy to do. They're not complicated. They're simple mm-hmm. to do, but they're not yeah. always easy because yeah. we're having to be honest with ourselves Yeah. In, in terms of taking a look at certain things. And to me, your book is extraordinary for the person who's really eager to increase their self-awareness and their effectiveness as a human being in whatever role they're playing in their lives. Uh, I just think it's so rich with that. And I have to say, I loved your final, the epilogue, 
Uh, but before we get to that, I mm -hmm. wanted to um, mention one other chapter that I really liked around identity. Because uh, yeah. You mentioned you do identity reconstruction with leaders. And so that's kind of a esoteric term. What does that really mean? Identity reconstruction? What does that look like? And how have you seen it? Give us an example of whether with an individual or with a group of leaders, you've been able to help them make some important transformations. Yeah, this is almost always part of my work and it concerns the beliefs we hold about ourselves. So that was the second category of beliefs, right? Beliefs are about our circumstances. Mm -hmm. and the big distinction there is the responsible versus victim mindset. The belief about ourselves are just as powerful, right? We hold hundreds of beliefs about ourselves. Uh, most of them are subconscious uh, and most of them are limiting. Um, and so they form what I call an identity and we act out of that identity. Uh, and it says somewhere in the book, the most powerful driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. And it's almost impossible to take actions that are inconsistent with your identity, with the beliefs you have about yourself. So if you want to take certain actions and get certain results, you have to know what your identity is. Because if your identity isn't consistent with the actions you really want to take, it's not going to happen. And, you know, the writing of the book was an example of an identity, a subconscious identity I was holding, which is I'm not an author. And somebody who has an identity of I'm not an author is going to talk a lot about writing a book, but it's never going to sit down and get and actually write one. So part of what the work that I do is to bring to light the beliefs that people have about themselves. Self-concept is, is sort of the, the, the notion here. And to, again, remind the people I'm working with that every single belief is made up even the ones, particularly the ones about yourself. Um, and if a belief is made up, it can be reconstructed. Again, this is the human superpower. And the funny thing that I encounter is even with people that are, have had extraordinary success in their career, is they're holding on to limiting beliefs about themselves that are so at odds with how I experience them or others experience them. It's almost laughable. Mm -hmm. And yet it's really hard for somebody to see it themselves. So this notion of I get, to, I get to reconstruct my identity. I can literally take a blank sheet of paper and construct an identity that I really feel great about that's going to lead to the kind of actions and therefore the results that I want to get in life. And, and then I begin to consistently say it every single day um, so that my subconscious begins to get wired in a certain way. And I can't help to take actions that are consistent with that new identity. And so an example would be I was working in, you know, with a, uh, a CFO and noticing you know, he was sort of describing to me the actions he was taking and not taking and what he wanted to do and where he was getting stuck. And um, I said, well, we, we kind of got to was I'm not a world-class CFO. There was no identity around being a world-class CFO. And I said, well, what, wait a second. What if you were to hold the belief, again, whether it's true or not, I don't really care, that I'm a world-class CFO. By the way, this was a very talented individual. I had every right to hold that belief, um, but certainly wasn't. Um, said, what actions would you then take? And out of that belief, it was like, well, I would do this, I would do that, and I would do that. Okay, it's like, okay, this is what we got to work on. What would it look like if you came from a, powerful place doesn't mean you're not humble doesn't mean you're arrogant you just owned your, your gifts you owned your god-given gifts and um held yourself 
uh, literally physically and the beliefs you're holding, all of that lined up around this central belief of I'm an extraordinary world-class CFO. And the actions just begin to naturally flow out of that identity. And so that's really, that's what's so fulfilling for me in the work that I do is um, I have the, this incredible privilege of allowing people to claim the gifts that they have mm. and to find a way to do it where how they manifest in the world is a reflection of their full potential. And, uh, and it's practice. You have to do this every day, multiple times a day, ongoing, because you're trying to undo years and decades of conditioning and the conditioning of a parent who didn't, wasn't, you know, wasn't supporting that identity conditioning of an educational system that didn't support that identity condition, you know, you know, so it is not easy, but once you see the possibility, then things begin to change. That is so it's really profound when you look at being able to declare yourself to be a certain way, whether it's reality today or not, it's going to drive those choices that you make about what you're going to do on a given day. I would love for you to share your own identity statement because I think it's quite powerful and it would, I think, um, help people see it's okay to have a, an identity statement that's aspirational. Yeah. You know, whether you live it every day or you feel like you're there yet or not, it's, it's helping you to visualize yourself being that person you want to be. Yeah. Uh, it's that. And I love the fact that you said it's, it is, you know, visualizing and, uh, and then owning it. And I, and I want to say, and then I'll share it. Um, when I say physically, I mean, in an embodied sense, if you have an identity of being an extraordinary, this, that, and the other, and your body is sheepish and constrained and, you know, there will be an incongruence mm-hmm. and your mind is going to know there's no way in heck you're going to, you you actually believe this, right? So it's a matter of like, there's a whole part of my book that gets into the connection of mind and body and neurophysiology and how you use your, your body to create a congruent sense of what you believe and how you're showing up. So um, that's, that's super important. So this is something I say every single day, multiple times a day, I never miss a day. Um, sometimes I will scream it like in the car if I'm driving or, you know, if I'm alone, uh, so I don't get too many strange looks. But here, my identity is I'm an extraordinary leader, coach, author, speaker, athlete, husband, father, son, brother, friend, and colleague. I command my mind and my body to use every ounce of my unlimited potential and infinite capacity to massively and positively impact the lives of others. And that's something I say every single day. I say it with physical and emotional congruence and it lights me up now is all of that true no (laughs) but is it does it create a state out of which i'm more likely to take actions consistent with that identity absolutely yes and don't i owe it to myself and others to be that kind of person in the world and that's the kind of message that you know i want to bring to leaders is don't sell yourself short. You know, we oftentimes are doing that um, subconsciously. And we not only have the opportunity, I, you know, I go so far as to say we have the responsibility. You've got hundreds, sometimes thousands of lives depending on you being at your best because you're in this privileged role of leading. 
or you just may be a leader of your family, just. That might be the most important leadership role you have. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all leaders of ourselves. <laughs> so we're leading something or someone or some you know, body of people. And it, within that role is a responsibility to take yourself on in this way that uh, is work, yes, but incredibly rewarding. Mm-hmm. I like the powerful, emotionally charged words that you mm. used, like massively, mm-hmm. you know, positive impact so that it, it really has a punch and it connects with your emotions. And yeah. that goes back to the physical again, feeling that as opposed to something that's just more, let's say, left brain, you mm. know, factual, but to really um, connect with how you would like to be in the world. So thank you for sharing that. I just love that. And in wrapping up, I do want to cover just a moment your epilogue because I love that. My father's key word in life was kindness. Mm. And so when I read that final piece and the story you shared, it was just the perfect culmination. And whether you want to share that particular story or let people read it themselves, Just talk a little bit about why kindness is so extraordinarily important in all of yeah. it. It's one of my core values um, and uh, values like anything else, you know, we, we construct. Um, I was blessed to always have a sense of, of kindness being important. I remember as a young child, I would, you know, I'd have maybe go and get an ice cream and I, and I couldn't help but notice the kid that didn't have the ice cream. Like it was just sort of what I paid attention to and I, and I felt bad. So I always had this sort of streak of kindness in me that it was important to be kind to others. Um, and as I was writing the book, I kept wanting to write a chapter on kindness and I couldn't quite get it right. Like it was, something was falling short and I was, wasn't, ha- I would try and I was like, you know, this isn't good enough. And I got to the end and I didn't have the chapter on kindness, even though I think kindness is woven throughout. And then I had this experience, and I'll share it, where I was walking on my daily commute from the BART station to my office, which I'm not doing right now. Uh, And I walked by this woman who was, you know, living on the street. Uh, She had a dog, and I just caught her eye, and she was putting on, like, mascara using a little pocket mirror. And there's something about this woman and her situation and... It just sort of grabbed my attention and I walked by her and I was just pulled back. It was like, it was sort of like an out of body experience. And I reflexively reached into my pocket and I pulled out some money and I, I handed it to her and like the words, you're already beautiful came out of my mouth. Like literally I didn't have to think about it. And we just connected human being to human being for and it was probably 10 or 15 seconds. There's nothing more that needed to be said. And it was an act of kindness, um, I think both ways, uh, that I just was transformative. It was like I'd, I'd walked that the rest of the way like I'd never walked before in my life. Mm. And it was right at the time when I put the pencil down on the book and I was like, oh my God, I found the story to wrap the book up because the missing piece is the world needs more kindness. And if we could just find moments like that each and every day to tap into what I think everybody wants 
to be part of and to be a contributor to. And um, I, I just sat down and I wrote that in like 10 minutes and I was like, okay, that's it. Perfect. And I was uh, really, it was sort of like the finishing touches on the book that I you know, felt like, okay, this is complete now. That's such a beautiful story. And yeah. it, it speaks to the generous, beautiful spirit that you have in my oh. opinion. You, you are, are, are extraordinary. And I am so um, grateful that you made that decision to write this book because I do believe everyone who reads it is enriched by what you shared. So it's, it's fantastic. So thank you so much. It's been an awesome conversation as I knew it would be. I did too. I would like to give you an opportunity to now tell people where they can get a copy (laughs) of your book, how they can connect with you and learn more about your services. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The book master your code. It's uh, it's on Amazon and, paperback and hardcover and Kindle. And I, I narrate the audible version. So if you have liked the sound of my voice, you can hear more of it <laughs> in that format. A number of people have uh, liked that format. And then I have a, an author website, Darren J. Gold, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D.com. And I've started a, a weekly uh, blog um, that I really, I'm really enjoying. And uh, you can sign up for that on, on that website. That's great. I highly encourage people to do that because your writing skills, you know, from the book, uh, or you may have practiced them beforehand, but they spill over into your blog. And to me, the beauty of your blog is it, it just like your book, it's thought provoking. Mm. You know, it's not just everyday kinds of things, although it's definitely relatable. You bring up important topics. You don't shy away from important topics that we all need to be thinking about and asking questions that draw us into that self-examination, greater self-awareness. And we'll be putting those links on the show notes page as well as your TED Talk because yeah. you on your website, um, DarrenJGold.com, there is a wonderful TED Talk about living an extraordinary life that I highly recommend folks listen to. So Darren, thank you. This has been such a pleasure and I appreciate who you are and all the contributions you're making to the world. Oh, Meredith, I have the exact same thoughts. Thank you. And thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure to be uh, in this conversation with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Strong for Performance podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com to learn how our tools can increase your impact with clients and expand your business. And while you're there, grab our free ebook, The Five Secrets to Getting Better at Anything. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell. Make it a great day.